Live. It is always a blessing to be able to bring the Word of God to faithfully steer and direct in all of biblical truth. Now, as you know, we have been working all the way through Acts so far. I think we have had a tremendous time and have seen the Lord really show us tremendous things, big doctrinal principles, but also day-to-day applicable things that we can attribute in our lives and and it really just helps our sanctification process as believers. Now, today, as we look at our text, we're going to be talking about, as you see the sermon title says, regeneration and repentance. Now, the reason that we are coming to this more than anything is because that's just where we are in the text, but also is that there is so much talk in today's world and really has always been in the course of church history about the way that we come to faith. Now, some people do incorrectly believe that we choose God on our own volition and we come to faith by choosing him, but that isn't possible. Some people even believe that salvation is like a mathematic formula. And if you miss one aspect of the equation, then you don't get the right answer. But if you get the formula right, then you get the right result, which is the Holy Spirit. Some people even believe erroneously that salvation is completed at the time that we are baptized. But these are all mistakes people make in interpreting the scriptures about what salvation is and what happens when we come to faith. Salvation happens for every believer only when we are pressed, when we are pricked, and when we are pierced by the word of God. Let me put it to you like this. No one has ever come to faith because of an obligation to fulfill the deepest conviction of their own conscience. Not one of us is saved because we were able to awaken ourselves because we saw the condition that we were in and knew we needed to be saved. Salvation just simply doesn't work that way. And that's the big thing that I want everybody to see today. Regeneration and repentance must happen as a part of our salvation, but we are not able to make that happen without the efficacious love and the power of God at work in our lives. We simply are unable to see ourselves if we aren't revealed to ourselves by an external source. In our cases, that external source that performs that method of revelation for our own lives is God. And the external work that he works in us is completed in us internally through the power of the Holy Spirit. Join with me in our text today, if you will. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for another preachable moment. Lord, there are so many truths 
in this text about our salvation, about regeneration, and about repentance, God. We pray that everything we see, everything we hear, everything we read today will push us into your presence with all spirituality, God, but with all truth. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we do pray. Amen. Now, there are so many terms that I typically will call church jargon terms, things that only churchy people typically understand, and they're so esoteric that people outside of the church context don't really understand the terms, and they're kind of dumbfounded by them. But with that, there are also certain terms, whether they are esoteric or not, that go beyond just church jargon, but that are pivotal for understanding the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and Two of those terms are mentioned in our sermon title today, regeneration and repentance. And we will spend the entirety of this sermon discussing exactly what regeneration and repentance is and how it comes up in this scripture. Now, you will notice that this scripture does mention repentance, but it doesn't mention regeneration extrinsically. I would argue that if you look intrinsically, you can see that all the ingredients of regeneration are held closely to us in this scriptural text. Now, the question that must be asked and also must be answered is, well, what is regeneration? Now, the late, great J.I. Packer, who actually just passed this last week at 93 years old, had this quote on regeneration. Regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. Now, allow me to put that in the most simple terms for you in layman's terms, if you will. Man from birth is corrupted in every fiber of his being. We are sinful in every fiber of our being, and we need to be redeemed. The only way we can be redeemed is through the work of Jesus Christ. So what is regeneration? In a shorter definition, it is God doing for man what man could not do for himself. Apart from God, we are hopeless sinners who would indulge ourselves, who would fulfill every sinful and wicked desire that we have unabated by any real truth. Now, the only restraint that we have that we have been given in our unregenerate state is that we are all born with a conscience, a moral code, if you will, as the Bible describes it in Ecclesiastes, eternity in our hearts by which we can discern effectively what the right behavior is or what the wrong behavior is. But we are effectively not saved by understanding right from wrong. We are only saved when God reveals sovereignly the truth in us and we live according to that truth. Now, this sense of consciousness that God has given us, he gives us as a means of grace. He gives us those means of grace for us to be able to tell what is right and what is wrong. But that sense of consciousness, however, is not enough for unregenerate man to be regenerated. Again, it is not something that we can do for ourselves by ourselves. 
This regeneration happens not because we have some special quality or some sense of thought of worth, but it is in the first moment that God sovereignly and graciously allows us to truly hear the gospel. Now, in hearing the gospel, we also see. We hear the truth, but we also effectively see ourselves in the first moment that we hear the gospel. That is the first time that we actually see ourselves unveiled by our sense of pride that we've been given. We see ourselves for the first time as filthy sinners who need the divine work of a savior to redeem us from the sins that have so stained our hearts. This regeneration happens only because God allows it to happen. There's been much to be said in the decades, the last few decades about accepting God into your heart. But if you think about this, and I got this from Tim Keller, you mean to tell me that the creator of the universe, the God who set everything in motion and is still in control of it, the Bible says, who holds the world together by the word of his power, I can accept him into my heart? No. Salvation was never about us accepting him. It was always about him accepting us. And there is one condition that he accepts all of us, and that is that we are regenerated by him. Now, like I said, with that being the clear definition of regeneration, Though our text does not say it specifically, I think we would all argue that we can see it. Now, you say, well, if regeneration is here in the text, when does it happen? I can show you when it happens. It happens right here. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's it. That is the very moment that regeneration happened. So you you get it. There isn't a process There aren't steps. There isn't a a box that has to be checked. In the moment that they saw and felt the sorrow of their sins, they had been regenerated. The fact that they could feel any sense of guilt for their sins is not alone because they could feel such grief that they could muster grief apart from God. But it was because God had already transformed them. Now, how does God methodize regeneration? And I'm using that word intentionally. He methodizes regeneration. Now, some people, as I mentioned before, believe that the method is this. I see my wrong. I acknowledge my wrong. And then God saves me from my wrong. But that is not the case, though. Look at this text. Look at what it says here. When they heard this, there it is. That's the point there. When they heard this, hearing here is only possible because regeneration has already happened. Without regeneration, we are blind, deaf and dumb to the truth, nor can we respond to it. So how does Romans say that we come to faith by what? Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing. How does hearing happen? Hearing happens because we have been regenerated by the word of God. Without God, our eyes couldn't see, our ears couldn't hear, and our hearts cannot believe. Let me tell you like this. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it in better words that I could even think it. 
He says, Christianity tells people to repent and promise them, promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. It is not until God has already regenerated us that we feel any sense of wrong, any sense of indignation from God. Because before that, we were enemies of God. But when he regenerates us, we see the fallenness of ourselves. C.S. Lewis is able to see that we all must see that no one has ever repented without knowing that they needed to repent. No one has ever sorrowed over their sins without knowing that there was a reason that they should be sorrowing. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, before he came to faith, he wept because his heart would not weep over his sins. He sorrowed because he could not sorrow over his sin. Think about it like this. The sun outside of the blinds is shining whether those blinds be opened or not. But it is not until that they are open that the whole house can see the light. Likewise, it is with us, dear brothers and sisters, that the truth of the gospel shines outside of our hearts. But until God opens the doors of our hearts, we are blinded from the truth of the gospel until God himself reveals that truth to us. And that in part is regeneration. Do you see how crucial and vitally important this is in knowing how we are to be saved, but are also being sanctified? Now, if we will say that regeneration happens and you notice the title of the sermon is regeneration and repentance, I want you to understand this very clearly. Regeneration must precede repentance. Look at it. Unless I know that I have sins that I need to be forgiven of, I will never change the direction of my life, nor do I have the power within myself to change the direction of my life. It is not until I have already been regenerated that I can sorrow over my sins and turn away from my sins. And I can only do that because the Holy Spirit already indwells in me. Regeneration must precede repentance. So with regeneration, we know that it is the instantaneous transformation that happens in us because solely of the work of God. In these men, in this text, their first sign of repentance was in their question of the apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? That is the very first time that they knew that something even needed to be done. Now, that is when repentance for every single one of us truly began. 
We knew in that very moment, we realized that when we saw ourselves as sinners for the very first time, we realized that something needed to be done about our lives. But in that simultaneous moment that we realized that something needs to be done, we also realized that something has been done, that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and that there is nothing else I can do than turn around and consider myself as a debtor to his grace and live my life dedicated to his work and his will. Yes, there are many people that we see in the Bible who come to Christ in the scriptures asking what they could do without fully realizing that they couldn't do anything. They very much intended on doing something. But these men ask here, what shall we do? Coming to the realization that there wasn't a single thing they could do because it was already done. Now, I know what you're probably doing here. You're probably looking at the next line of the text here and thinking, but Peter tells them what they should do. Listen, many denominations and reformations have made that exact same mistake. They look here at this text and they think synonymously repentance and baptism must happen in order for a person to be saved. Regeneration and repentance, which happen simultaneously, instantaneously at the point that you are saved, those must precede anything to, in order for you to have a relationship with God. Baptism, however, is not this last portion of your salvation that's required in order for you to get in. I've heard people even say things like, if you aren't baptized, you aren't really saved. Or if you weren't baptized in the right name, then you're not really a Christian. But that happens because of a misinterpretation of the text and an attempt to methodize salvation in a way that God has not. Salvation is not a three-step process. And then if you miss out on the step, then you don't really have it. It is solely up to God and God alone. That's why the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, it is not anything that we do. He did it. He does it. He saves us. He chooses us. We don't choose him. He chose us on the basis of predestination and foreknowledge, not because of any works that we had, but it was because of the goodness and the grace of God and God alone. So what does repent mean? It means to literally turn or change one's mind and the direction by which one pursues. This no one is capable of doing on their own. So when Peter says here, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, he is not saying that if you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus, then it's negated or that it negates or undermines what Jesus said. But he's saying this with the fact that many of the Jewish men who would have been here had many ceremonial washings. We know this because Jesus even had to come back this at times because the Jewish leaders didn't think that the disciples were 
participating in these ceremonial washings the way they should have. And so what Peter here is making it very clear, he's making the distinction against the rest of these ceremonial washings that they would have had. No, this is not like any other washing you will have. You are being cleansed from the inside out, not the outside in, in the name of Jesus. And this cleansing, no one can revoke from you. You have been cleaned from the inside out. But not only that, in this public display, you are displaying an accountability to all of the witnesses who are there before you that you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, one that you will intrinsically hold yourself accountable to, but so will these witnesses of what you have just done. Now, the other error that many people make here is in in misinterpreting the use and the meaning of the word for. Now, I know what you're thinking, that maybe I'm missing words or maybe I'm straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. But we literally have to remember that this is spoken oftentimes in Aramaic and written in Greek. And we have to do our best to translate it. And just because we see a word doesn't mean that that word means what we think it means. And so a lot of times what people see, and a lot of denominations have done this, they see for here and they think that it means repent and be baptized in order that your sins will be forgiven. And so what happens is that people believe that if you aren't baptized, then your sins are forgiven. But that totally goes against the gospel, which says by grace you have been saved, not by works. So if it isn't translated here for in order that, then what is it saying? It is saying here that we are baptized not in order that we be saved, but we are baptized because we have been saved. It is something that has preceded the baptismal act. Nobody should be getting baptized so that they would be saved because that means you're contributing something to your salvation. No, we are baptized because we have been regenerated and because of that regeneration, we have repented, we have changed, we have turned the course of our lives because of the work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and we are declaring this publicly before all of the witnesses that This is who we are. This is who I was, but this is who I am now. Because God has regenerated us and removed the debt of our sins and forgiven us, we turn away from those sins and publicly declare that relationship with God before anyone who sees it without shame. And the culmination of this simultaneous event is that he gives us the guarantee, the promise of the Holy Spirit. These are the gifts that we receive for our salvation. He then says in speaking to these Jewish men who would have totaled about half a million that God had extended this invitation, not just to them, but to their generations, their future generations, and then universally to all of us. Now, we know that the call of Christ is not universally accepted, but it has been universally extended to everyone. Now, the likelihood here is that Peter's sermon would have been going on for hours upon hours, and he wouldn't have stopped speaking until God told him to stop speaking. 
This is what the Bible means when it says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword because it pierces, it cuts, it separates, it convicts us in the deepest recesses of our sins, and it strips off the calluses from around our hearts and make us feel what we never felt. It makes us see what we never saw. It makes us hear what we never heard, and it makes us despair, utterly despair, over the sins that have wrought us. Peter then says, as I mentioned earlier, with the urgency that he has, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves. Listen, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in our preaching, We must have the same urgency that Peter would have had in this sermon. We cannot pitter and patter with people's lives with the words that we get up here and preach. The words that we speak must have meaning. They must carry weight because there are people who desperately need to hear the gospel. Not one of us who is listening to this sermon, not one of us who is watching this sermon has grown enough that we do not need the gospel. We need the gospel every second of our lives. The text ends here by saying that those who were added to the church were 3,000 men. Now, you remember, I mentioned earlier that there were about half a million people there. And so you may think, well, half a million and we only get 3,000? Must not have been an effective sermon. But I look at this and I'm like, we got 3,000. I can't believe we even got one. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when even one comes to faith. Can you imagine preaching and seeing 3,000 people who had an eternal damnation awaiting them to be propelled out of that eternal damnation and an eternal bliss and joy and peace with God forever and ever and that all of heaven erupted when every single one of them came to faith. That's why we do what we do. That's why we preach what we preach. It's because when even one comes to faith, the Bible says all of heaven rejoices. The scripture is faithful and it is true when it says that if Jesus Christ and nothing else, no other philosophy, no other doctrine, no other truth, but it is only when Jesus and Jesus alone is lifted from the earth that he draws all men. Listen, me lifting up myself draws nothing. It's only with Jesus is lifted that we see the draw. People, there is one thing that needs to happen in order for regeneration and repentance to take place. And that is that Jesus must be lifted from our pulpits, from our homes, my jobs. No matter where we find ourselves, we must lift Jesus above ourselves. He must be lifted He must be raised. He must be exalted. And when that happens, people will be pulled from every corner of the earth with every sin. And they will be forgiven and made anew. 
The Bible tells us to come to him, all of us who labor and who are heavily burdened. And it is faithful and true in saying this, that he will give us rest. Listen, I want you to be encouraged by this sermon today and knowing this, that the work of salvation, the maintaining of my faith, is not up to me. I'm saved because of the work of Christ. I'm held together by the work of the Spirit. And the plan of my salvation was put in place according to God's foreknowledge before I was even shaped in the womb of my mother. He knew me. Not only did he know me, he can still number the very hairs on my head. That is the God we're talking about. He has saved us. He has regenerated us. And he has made repentance possible. I know that there are people who are watching this sermon who have been in and out struggling in their relationship with God for years, maybe decades. And you have never felt that sense of peace and consistency in your walk. That freedom that comes knowing that you are forgiven from your sins because your sins feel like they're ever before you. Let me just tell you like this. Allow God to do his work and get out of his way. He can save to the utmost. It is his responsibility to save us, to sanctify us, and to keep us. And even when we turn the course of our lives, we only do that because of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ and the plan of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for regeneration. Lord, we have been recreated. We have been made anew in you, not because of anything that we have done of ourselves, for ourselves, or by ourselves, but because of your work, God. You have completed the work of salvation in our lives, and you have propelled us into repentance and a life that has been so devoted to you, God. Help us understand the truth of our salvation, the truth of soteriology, that there is no other way that men and women are saved, but other than the work of God and God alone. There is no process. There is no step. There is no method. There, is, there are no words. There is no baptism that saves us other than you save us alone, God. And everything else that proceeds out of our lives only happens because you alone have regenerated us and allowed us and permitted us and given us the strength and the right and the privilege of repentance and living our lives for you. So God, we thank you. It is in the master's name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So